This is our last round table of the day, but it is by no means the least exciting because STEAM education encapsulates so much of what we're talking about. And we started talking about STEAM this morning. I know that feels like a long time ago. It does to me. Um, this morning, we talked about uh, polymathy. We talked about transdisciplinary groups as the kind of new version of a Leonardo. What are we trying to do when we teach people STEAM? Um, what are the ways that STEAM um, gets realized either in the nonprofit sector or in education in K through 12 versus college? Um, what are these people going to grow up to be like? Uh, so these are the questions that we start talking about this morning. We have a very good group of people here who have very vastly different experience from teaching for a couple of years to teaching for 45 years. So, so there's a lot of wisdom to be found here. Um, I will let Zach, as usual, introduce the panel and then we'll get started. Harvey Seifter. Harvey is founder and director of the Art of Science Learning, AOSL. He has taught innovation at GE's Crotonville Global Leadership Development Seminar. He is also a classically trained musician and has provided his leadership in works with numerous award-winning musical productions. Jill Barganetti. Jill is a professor at Hunter College and CUNY Graduate Center. She has received an NSF Career Award and Presidential Early Career Award for scientists. She is also a standing member on the NIH Tumor Cell Biology Study Section. She also is a choreographer who has developed a class choreographing genomics, which focuses on teaching genome information flow through postmodern dance. Paul Fry. Paul is the William Lampson Professor of English and has taught at Yale since 1971. His primary areas of specialization are British Romanticism, the history of literary criticism, contemporary literary theory, and literature in relation to the visual arts. He is also an award-winning author. Cynthia Panucci. Cynthia is the founder of ASCI, or ASCII, and is responsible for creating much of the pioneering art science programming. She has a background in fine arts, and as a professional artist, worked with printmaking, textiles, mixed media, and photography. Daniel Grushkin is co-founder and executive director of GenSpace. He is also the founder of the Biodesign Challenge. Daniel is a fellow at Data and Society. Additionally, he has done journalistic work reporting on the intersection of biotechnology, culture, and business for Bloomberg, Businessweek, Scientific American, and other publications. Ellen Levy. Ellen is a New York-based artist and writer and a past president of the College Art Association. With Patricia Olnick, she co-directs the New York-based Laser, which is Leonardo Art and Science Evening Rendezvous, as I mentioned earlier. She was special IDSVA advisor on the arts and sciences at the Institute for Doctoral Studies in the Visual Arts and has been in numerous group and solo exhibitions have been featured, featured her art here and abroad, including at the National Academy of Sciences, the New York Academy of Sciences, and the like. With that, let's begin the roundtable.
All right, thank you, Zach. Um, so my, the question on my mind right now is for Paul. And you can get us started by maybe framing us a little bit. Having been in education for 45 years, I'd love to hear about how you think things have changed, your experience, good or bad, through changes, and either ideas about what the institutions want or ideas about what the students want. Yes, uh, thanks, Julia. That's, that's a good sequence of questioning because uh, it, it puts me in the role of reporter, which I think is probably the safest role to have me in. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, today, the uh, effort to create interactions between uh, literary and science study is quite lively. In the academy, it certainly was not when I, when I began teaching. Uh, today, I suppose the most visible, it's been mentioned already, uh, form of collaboration is ecological studies, which is a lively field in the literary world. world. Ursula Heise was mentioned earlier as one important figure in that field. Uh, there are also uh, quite serious uh, efforts at the uh, neurological understanding of aesthetics. Uh, some years back, there was a book of essays called Beauty and the Brain, uh, which was uh, interestingly experimental. It showed, uh, for example, that dogs and monkeys were as uh, uh, excited about the golden section as we are uh, and that um, perhaps for reasons having to do with shelter theory some of you may know Jay Appleton's book uh, on shelter theory uh, and uh, in any case there have been efforts to understand the aesthetic which always seems somehow or another to be completely in agreement with Kant's aesthetics and, and, and how and why the scientific approach to aesthetics gives you that result um, I don't think I'm qualified to say uh, but it's interesting and there are now also interesting neurological efforts to understand what was earlier referred to as the importance of telling stories uh, not not so much the anthropological question, why do we tell stories, but the neurological question, why do the stories take the shape that they do? Uh, a person called Lisa Zunshine is well known in this field, and there are a number of other people uh, working in that field uh, as well. Um, there, there have been lots of efforts to correlate the relationship between literary hermeneutics, the art and science of interpretation, uh, something that interests me especially because I really simply think of myself as a teacher of interpretation and if I'm inter or transdisciplinary it's plainly that one needs to interpret in about any undertaking one can think of uh, but there are uh, there are there have been efforts by Edie Hirsch and others uh, to make a correlation between hermeneutics and the scientific method in the argue uh, under the umbrella of arguing that there's a kind of uni unified field theory of interpretation. Uh, this has met with widespread skepticism and I'd be interested to hear uh, the views of many of you on a subject of that sort. I certainly share the skepticism myself uh, and I think that it's partly uh, the skepticism we heard earlier about the scientific method itself that, <laughs> that, uh, that drives that in large degree. Uh, and, but in any case, this is another field in which there's quite lively interest within literary study. 
Uh, I think I should stop there for the moment and, and come back to, to other aspects of the issue. I, I, I would only add that uh, when somebody said recently that, well, you know, we're all the same here. There's not much diversity in this group. Um, <laughs> I feel quite diverse. Uh, I, as, as, as our children say, I suck at science uh, and um, I can't pretend otherwise. Uh, but I nevertheless do, at the abstract level, take a lively interest in these things. It's really just the hands-on part of it I can't do. I could never see anything in a microscope. I just, I, you know, I, I would look and I would see nothing and I would call the lab assistant over and the lab assistant would say, look there, don't you see those things crawling around? No, I don't see them. <laughs> so this was a kind of visual inhibition on my part, which I've never overcome. I suppose another remote qualification I have to be here is that I do paint. I was an art major in college and I seriously considered a career in painting, but it's only been intermittent. I've done some exhibiting, but not much. So in effect, I think I'm in the category of that person who dissected those frogs, and you know, <laughs> and so, and I also have a very different attitude toward the kind of creativity that goes into my own painting, and the kind of creativity that I admire in my literary studies. And I, 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 I it would be very hard for me to talk about a bridge, really, between those two activities. So. And, yeah, it's interesting when we're talking about integrating disciplines, but then we have to recognize, and we have been doing this, you know, that they're different, they feel different, uh, and, and that's, that's not a bad thing either. Um, so, uh, Jill, I'd love to hear a bit from you about your experience in your class choreographing genomics, because I think that'll also really set the stage for, for this steam. Yeah, I'd love to share it. I just want to say thank you to you, Julia, and thank you to the Helix Center, and Thank you to SciArt, because it's really been an amazing day, and yesterday helping me to think about how I integrate um, art and science, and all the discussions that have been going on here. So in my class, choreographing genomics, is, which is what I'd like to focus on, and this idea of, of this collaboration, but collaboration within each human being themselves, um, I've come to feel today that really I need to describe myself as a scientist and an artist. And that that is what I am working to do with my students in the classroom, is to make sure that every student is describing themselves as a scientist and an artist. And that they are not at odds with each other. And I think that that's why we're all here, because we recognize that they're not at odds with each other. And that the process of discovery in science is similar to the process of discovery in the arts. And that allowing young adults, you know, 19-year-olds who are at that process of discovery to discover in that way in the classroom and get joy out of discovery through art for science and science understanding is an important thing. So what I do in the class is to have the students have two texts, one which is about art and postmodern dance called um, Terpsichorean Sneakers, which describes to them a lot of what happened at Black Mountain College and the, the process where many postmodern dance choreographers were learning or thinking about moving out of the realm of 
classical dance training in order to give the process of what is art, that process of art, what is experiencing art, and allowing each student to recognize that their experience will help them to experience the visual learning of science, because all true scientists are very visual thinkers, kinesthetic thinkers, didactic thinkers. They're having all these different thinking processes brought to the table. So to teach students when in this um, forum, or we're talking about education, I think that it's really important to allow students to learn through what's called VARC, which is visual learning, auditory learning, reading and writing, and then kinesthetic process. And so that the students are bringing all of those processes to the learning table. So they're learning about these different postmodern choreographers, so they can learn about Yvonne Rayner and Merce Cunningham, and they know they can run and they can jump, and they're all dancers and all these different choreographers. So they're learning all of these things through the lens and voice of Sally Baines, who wrote this amazing book. And then they're learning about DNA through somebody who I don't particularly care for, but James Watson's book, um, where they get to learn even that, that lens of somebody who speaks in such terrible words about people. Um, and you see his lens, and you see his um, racism and his sexism through his lens, but you do also get the brilliance of the DNA molecule and information flow. And so that's the text they have for that, so they can, they can see how you can have both together. And we're talking about all of these things, and then they're bringing them to the table to choreograph genome information flow, DNA to RNA to protein. And um, earlier today, it was like, what is the new icon, our iconic symbol? And it is DNA, and we talk about DNA as the heart of things. People use it now in language, and the language of science and biology is often couched in language of choreography and movement and motion and synergism and all these words we use in science that are also used in choreography. So the students are using all of this, bringing it to the table, choreographing, and then picking genes on different chromosomes that associate with cancer and exploring those in movement. And they all have to be the choreographer. They all use all the students in the class as their dancers. And they all are being audience. So they're learning the, the act of art, art formation, art audience, science, conceptual, and I think that's a great way to teach, and I think it's a great way to learn, and I was lucky enough to have it, and I try to give that to others. And can I ask you a question? You're saying that you're teaching, for example, DNA yields for RNA yields protein, which was the mantra for many years, certainly when I was growing up, but no longer is. Correct. So do you also update these so, uh, theories? So this class, in the class that I teach, so this is Biology 175, the one that I'm telling you about. I teach many different levels. I also teach PhD students. But in this class right now, I have people who, who it's their first semester um, in college. And so, you know, I may talk a little bit about microRNAs and all these other complex things, but these students actually, just having them understand five prime to three prime and using their bodies to understand directionality and anti-parallel and this ode to central dogma, it, it's enough kind of, you, you have to decide what you can add on when. Um, when they walked into the class, so you also have to deal with assessment in education. So when they walked into the class, the first piece is to do assessment. 
and to assess do they know the name of any gene? Do they know how many chromosomes we have? Do they know how many nucleotides there are? Do they know how many miles this would stretch for? And none of them knew any of this, okay? So you begin with the assessment and then have to take it from there. Okay, now they know how many chromosomes. They know many genes. They know what those products do. They know enzymatically where activities are happening in the nucleus. And the So yes, a little. But this is a class to try to help them determine what's your major going to be. And some of them are going to, they want to become, they're going to theater and they want to do puppetry. And others want to become chemistry majors and some want to become doctors. And so it's, it's to begin that vocabulary so the person who goes into puppetry, who's the one who actually made our flyer, who's so excited to share, the performance, it's taught in a black box theater. There are no desks, there are no chairs, you know, they're, they're moving. Um, but he's the most excited to share what they've learned in their final exam, which is performance-based. So we can't do everything beyond where we were with Central Dogma at the beginning. Right. But I think it's a beginning of how do you set the stage as opposed to when students come in and they take general biology, they think they're going to med school, and maybe they get a C, and all of their dreams are, are squashed. And they're just like, what do I do? And, this is, and they've sat in this classroom with 500 students in the back really on their phone half the time, as opposed to in this classroom where their phone can't come out because they're moving. And if they don't get five prime to three prime, they haven't joined hands with the right person. And I'm asking them, where are you? Why'd you go there? So we can't do everything. Um, so, so what it sounds like for your class is that you're describing uh, a dance class in the service of teaching science, basic DNA science. Am I in misunderstanding? You are misunderstanding. This is not a dance class. This is a science class. The class is Biology 175. Mm -hmm. And it's utilizing um, all different kinds of learning possibilities to teach people in many different ways. So they have to come to class having read two different chapters. They have to already understand. I'm not going to stand there and tell them all the things they should have read in the text. So it's almost a, what we call a flipped classroom. Mm -hmm. So they have to have come in prepared to be ready to go where they're supposed to go. And it's very evident if they don't understand the concepts where I can help them, I can help them to feel it in their body. I can help them to articulate it with their voice because postmodern dance and performance art you're articulating, so they're speaking, they're moving. There are times I'll do a PowerPoint to, to show them the, like when we're dealing with five prime to three prime and really getting them to understand the molecule and where the sugar is. So they're also doing chemistry. Everything is there. They see the chemistry of the molecule. They have to understand where the sugar is, the nucleotide is. So it's, this is a beginning, but I think it's a great beginning because much of our vocabulary in science now is based on the genome. So it sets them up. The next semester, they might be going to general biology or they're in chemistry. It sets them up. But it is not dance. They're not, they don't have to point their toe, but they do have to run. Or maybe if they can't run, they have to sit and speak. They, whatever's going to work. I'm just well, working for what will work. I would, uh, sorry, I would agree that this is an essential part of STEAM education to bring these different things together. But it also reminds me, 
2015, I opened up the New York Times and I read a fascinating article on trying to decipher the Herculaneum scrolls. And it couldn't be done. This was 2015. Or some of it could be done, but not all of it. A little bit later in the paper, there was another article about the connectome and Sung from uh, Columbia, his effort to um, decipher the neuron connections, the neuronal connections in the brain. And when you read the article a little bit further, what you realized is that they shared a common solution but didn't really reason, uh, realize it, which had to do with tomographic imaging, that they could unfurl the uh, scrolls using tomography without having to actually invasively destroy them. And that was true also for the neurons. So it would have been interesting if there had been somebody there representing Steve who said, why don't you guys collaborate and see what happens? I love that idea. That's so funny. Um, so I, I want to switch a little bit to STEAM outside of the classroom because there is plenty of that to go around. Uh, Harvey, do you want to start us off? Because you have a lot to say in this. Sure. Um, so just a little bit of background. Um, I started off as a musician. I learned to read music before English. Um, I did a lot of science as a kid, uh, working in renal immunology. In college, I hung out with a rougher crowd, so I did theater. And <laughs> theater was my kind of core professional activity for the first half of my career. Um, I also kept, uh, kept a toehold in music, and when I became director of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, I had this opportunity to work with this amazing conductorless orchestra. And I became really fascinated with how the orchestra did that, how, how they were able to perform that way. And that actually led me into some broader questions not only about what could you learn about collaboration from a conductorless orchestra, but more broadly, what can we learn from artistic skills, processes, experiences, in what realms and what domains and how we could apply them. And it was really growing out of that, that and, and the things that I learned in doing all of that work led me to believe that there were these, as, as we looked at the application of these things in business and research and academia, that the world was filled with these, these really intractable and wicked problems that were effectively failures of the imagination and failures of collaboration, that the fault lines of those failures tended to be where the disciplines were or weren't meeting, and that there might be ways to work with the arts and with arts-based learning to help bridge those gaps and begin to build new things in the space in between, to use the the, the, the phrase that's been used a lot here today. So um, that led me to start the Art of Science Learning. And with the Art of Science Learning, we've really done three kind of big things over the last decade. The first is we've developed, and we, because there are 40 artists involved with this, and there are artists that are visual artists and sculptors and painters, poets, filmmakers, uh, uh, choreographers, improv theater artists, other types of theater artists, musicians. So. We've, we've worked with lots and lots of different ways that you can experience and explore the arts. We turned that all into a curriculum, a curriculum that was really designed 
pretty much for anybody. So um, not for really little kids. We have other things that we do with really little kids. But um, really from adoles for adolescents and adults from all kinds of different backgrounds and interests and approaches. And it focuses on how you can use the arts to help you learn and help you become an innovator. And innovating in many, many different domains. So we, we kind of built that body of work and those best practices that this is, as we were able to find them and put them together in a curriculum. The second thing is we, we realized, of course, that we designed a curriculum for which no institutions existed that could ever be taught. So um, we essentially spent several years creating a large workaround as a model. And that took the form of Incubators for Innovation, which we set up in a number of cities around the country in partnership with museums and other kinds of informal learning centers, where we brought together hundreds of people, artists and scientists and business leaders and researchers and high school students, college students, and so forth, and working around specific STEM challenges, exploring them through the arts and through arts-based learning, and then innovating and actually developing new ideas into products, processes, services, curricula to address civic challenges like water resources and urban nutrition and transportation alternatives. And then the third thing that we did is we kind of focused a lot on impact and data because we had a strong sense that for all the power that we've all experienced at this intersection of art, science, and learning, we have relatively little proof that we impact it. <laughs> and so that it was important to try to address that. So we've kind of spent this, 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 these, these years working outside the formal education system, but I think increasingly coming up with things that are impacting it and creating opportunities to. I feel like you have some, some good input here about outside of the classroom, or going from the classroom out into the real world. So um, let me tell you about my background before uh, I jump into it. So I'm your, neither... Your mic, I'm sorry, your mic's not on. Can, can you hear me now? Better? Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, I'll just keep my finger here, and it'll make me look very intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, my background is as a journalist. Uh, I neither have a degree in the sciences nor particularly in the arts. Uh, I fell into it because as a journalist, um, I found that access to the sciences, speci specifically biotech, was incredibly hard once you left the university setting. Meaning, I was reporting on all these wonderful scientists and all the wonderful work they were doing, and the second that I wanted to actually try any of the work that they did themselves, it became immediately clear that it would take me another decade to get back into the lab and actually try anything of my own. And that was not acceptable to me, personally. Uh, and so, lo and behold, we created something called GenSpace, uh, which is the first community biology lab, uh, where anyone, regardless of background, regardless of you know, what stage of life they're in and what, you know, what they're doing with their time can come into our space and do at least their first genetic transformation. Um, and then move on from there to more sophisticated things like uh, uh, CRISPR or uh, we're, we're about to offer a grow your own lamp using mycelium. So, um, 
I, you know, historically for, for me, and I've been doing this for the last 10 years, I haven't been uh, sort of addressing these issues within the institution. It was only later that we created the Biodesign Challenge, and that's largely because artists and designers were finding their way to us. Uh, being New York-based, that shouldn't be a surprise, but it was. Um, and what they were looking to do was use our space as a platform for them to explore the technology. Um, and as someone, as a science journalist who wasn't, you know, um, didn't know much about uh, the practice, it became very clear that they were contributing something very, very important to the dialogue that was going in on our lab. Uh, and I actually think contributing something very important to a larger dialogue about what this technology, what this science actually means for us as a society. So they were asking, well, what can I do with this stuff? And how will it affect the future of us as a civic society, us as individuals, us as a collective? And these questions were really, really important to me. So one of the things that I haven't heard today uh, was anything about social justice, environmental justice, and it has surprised me. Um, and I think largely this collaboration, these are the things that will unfurl, uncover, sorry, going back to being intelligent, uh, will unfurl and uncover uh, some of the challenges in social and environmental justice. Uh, to make a long story short, we created a program called the Biodesign Challenge where we took classrooms of artists and designers, we partnered them with biologists who would act as kind of guides and mentors, offering up office hours, and we asked them to imagine the future. What does the future of biotechnology look like out in the world? How would you use some of the papers that you've read, some of the uh, new advances in research? How would that actually turn out in our society? How would that turn out in the products that we use? Um, and the students then were able to either innovate and, and show us some amazing visions, but also critique. And that became very important. And so for the last three years, we've had these students on stage at MoMA presenting their ideas. And as much as they are a celebration of the learning of the science through this novel means. It's also a critique of the of what happens when you take science and technology and you cross it with capitalism. Um, and I think that's actually where where the, the, the power of this um, begins, for me personally. I want to go back to the classroom, but, but first. <laughs> um, well, my background is... It, as a fine artist, you know, we often have to have a day job to support our art habits. So for 10 years um, as an artist in New York, before I started ASCII, I worked with kids in community settings. Um, so I did a quilt project with pregnant teenage girls with the theme of your hopes and fears of being a pregnant teenager. Um, I did environmental murals with kids at a... Um, a religious after-school project where, um, you know, it was about... Uh, they got down on the floor and they put their bodies and traced around their bodies and then those paper patterns went into the big 13-foot by 8-foot mural. But through working with kids in children's museum settings and designing art workshops and, and also interactive sculpture... Um, where kids could could uh, 
accessorize with pattern texture and form. Um, so interactivity became important to me and going into science museums and seeing how kids were like pretty much programmed to be pressing, pressing buttons and I didn't see that they were getting very much out of that in terms of learning. Um, so I just personally became involved in ocean conservation from my first snorkeling experience in 98. And when I learned, you know, that they, before we could go down in the water, they said, you can't touch the reef because there's a protective film and it will kill the reef gradually. Anyway, I started to get, I just read all I could on the internet. I started to realize that when you, when I saw this phantasmagorical setting with all these fishes, and then, I, and then we got out of the boat, and he said, "Well, you know, two thirds of the ocean reefs are dead or endangered." And I thought, I was like outraged, like I didn't know that, and I couldn't figure out well why in our society. I watch National Geographic, and like all of you do, and I couldn't figure out, you know, why, why I didn't really know, but. So I started studying about, well, so what is the significance of artificial reefs? Why should we care? Well, now my passion is ecology because I've learned that the phytoplankton floating around in the global ocean is responsible for 80% of the oxygen that we breathe and all the fresh water that grows our plants and that we drink. And so my, my, my pursuit has, has kind of gone along this path. So I took my interest to NOAA in Washington, D.C., and I had this project that would, um, was about the ocean, the health of the ocean. And there was a photography project and a, a fashion project and all these different components. And they said, well, where's your, where's your uh, youth education project? And I hadn't done that. So I went back to the drawing boards, and I, a year later I came up with this project about collapsing ocean fisheries. Um, and um, there, so I reached out to the oceanography uh, community and, uh, and got people from the Southeast Asian um, well, countries and the Philippines and other countries to um, put, their, put children together on a blog. And to be talking about, for instance, in the Philippines, um, children often can't go to school anymore because they have to take all-day fishing to catch minnow-sized fish because the industry size, um, a fishing industry from the Baltic countries that is totally subsidized by their governments comes in to the Philippines and, you know, raids all of the endemic fish that they can get their hands on. So anyway, well, so friends were telling me, Cynthia, don't do a project about collapsing fisheries with kids that are 8, 9, and 10. What do they care about fish? <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't really normally listen to people, so I, I kind of went on with this project, but something amazing happened. Um, the project was with uh, fourth graders at um, a school in Chinatown because the principal was a very ad advan adventuresome principal and she took it on. Um, so, we, um, so we had these children blogging to these other countries and they were, they were either acting or speaking for the fish 
like, don't throw dynamite on my reef because, you know, they're going to kill me and you're going to destroy the whole reef as well, which is what they do in Malaysia. Um, so, and then, so the kids were to speak, uh, to give voice to the fish and also to give voice to the children in the other countries that were the people, their parents were having to move away from the shoreline because there were no more fish, so they had to go and do agricultural things. Well, anyway, it's, it's, it started me on this whole journey. And um, when it was over, we had this blog conversation that was supported by this Philippine um, ocean um, management, fishery management. Um, organization and it was online and it wasn't live but the questions were posed so in the end I hired a choreographer and um, I made these fish cutouts as just objects dart that the students would um, the choreographer just designed this movement some were ocean anchovies some were sea bass so there was a movement and then the music stopped and the kids would go to the microphone one at a time, and they would do this monologue that came out of the blog that happened. So there was a performance that was sponsored by the United Nations Environment Program for the World Environment Day in 2007. And um, at the end of this wonderful little performance that the kids did, um, they ran up to me and they said, well, we have to write a letter to the president. Doesn't he know what's going on? This was George Bush's uh, administration. But it's, I had never talked to them anything politically. Um, I showed them a picture of this, the young children in the Philippines on stilts fishing. And I told them that they, you know, these kids, kids could not go to school anymore. Well, I didn't realize that the kids that I was working with in Chinatown you know, that, that culture is very interested in education, so much so that that's the most important thing to them. And these kids were coming up with these <clears throat> concerns like, the children in the Philippines need to be able to go to school, you know? A anyway, it was a totally, in terms of outcomes of projects, I had kind of created a framework, but I had no idea that these children would have been, had a reaction. But it was uh, out of empathy, I think, for their fellow yeah. fellows in well, a different part of the country. We've kind of, we've touched upon this before, but w when you give people the opportunity to have a kind of cross-disciplinary experience, whether they know they're having it or not, there's this kind of thrill which, which is um, you know, relayed at the end. And because uh, students are wide-eyed, that's, that's why they're wonderful, they're open to learning. So yeah. I just wanted to point out, we have, Kind of independent artist nonprofit, academia, nonprofit, academia, nonprofit, academia slash nonprofit. <laughs> um, how do we enact STEAM across these uh, platforms? Uh, what's easy for you and what's hard for you? Uh, first of all, I think that there are many more opportunities for art, science, um, insights, and maybe in terms of teaching, what's important is to not only draw connections, but think how you could impart it. I spoke with a woman uh, who is uh, an educator, Susan, um, I believe it's, it's word, she's at uh, Hogarth, Hogarth, 
And what, Zwern, that, that's her name. And she told me something very interesting. Many of you probably realize that both Golgi and uh, Kahal received a Nobel Prize together. But what I had not realized until I spoke with her was that they both used the same staining method. Um, and Kahal came up with neuron theory, whereas Gogol um, came up with a theory that was, I think it was called reticular theory. It was discarded and considered incorrect. And um, what she looked at with her class were the differences, even using the same methodology, which allowed one to see something differently from the other. This had to do with looking through the microscope, adjusting it, using extra uh, resources after applying stains. Evidently, Cajal went and used various kinds of pigments and coloring on it to bring out certain characteristics. That this is just one. This is the tip of the iceberg. Another really prevalent thing is it wasn't just Galileo who looked through a telescope. I mean, this happened in, uh, at the same year with a man from England named Hinton. But what allowed Galileo to see this was his fine arts education and his relationship with an, a man named Chigley. So I think that in terms of teaching, having symposium, um, these extra things need to be brought out where you have creativity on the part of two people, and yet one is able to make even further observations. This is something all of you here um, can use in your teaching and your communication with others. I could. So these questions. Well, I, I, the future of education is part of our topic, and I suppose I should say that another thing I do is uh, co-chair uh, something called the, started as the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute, and now it's a national program called Yale National Initiative for uh, public school teachers K through 12 in underrepresented schools in collaboration with uh, university faculty who teach content-based seminars for those public school teachers. Uh, and what's of interest perhaps in our context is the question how to approach the trans and interdisciplinary in this setting. Because of course, as other people have said, speaking of uh, school teaching, uh, one is beset by codes and standards, uh, and above all by test scores, and which is still, for, for us as for others who have spoken, the only available form of evaluation that convinces funders. Uh, so um, there's a lot that one's up against here. Uh, but uh, a lot of us have nevertheless, I've taught 15 of these seminars, uh, and uh, a lot of us have experimented um, with, with tiptoeing around uh, the interdisciplinary. They write long curriculum units as opposed to lesson plans uh, so that it's partly an exercise in uh, 
brushing off their prose. Uh, the, uh, and is, so I, for example, teach seminars sometimes uh, concerning poems on pictures uh, and introduce the idea that actually uh, the visual arts and verbal arts have rival agendas and in some ways envy each other and that uh, there's a kind of a dramatic force field that one encounters in an ekphrastic poem, as they're called. Uh, and I try to interest uh, teachers who are English teachers, or in some cases, art teachers, in the possibility of thinking within the humanities of a variety of disciplines. Uh, and it's in that way that we feel we can approach the problem even for the K through 12 uh, teachers whose uh, um, uh, lives are so scripted and regimented. As, as, as we all know, it's a, it, 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 it's a small step, as we say on the moon, uh, but it is uh, something at least we can do to enliven uh, the prospect of teaching for public school teachers in the future. If I could just hold this, the uh, floor for another minute to talk about um, something I do myself as an undergraduate and graduate teacher. I teach a seminar quite often called Defenses of Poetry. Uh, which once again has to do with the rivalry among disciplines. You know, Plato uh, in the 10th book of the Republic uh, unceremoniously banished the poets uh, from his ideal republic and based his whole argument in favor of uh, a just life under the philosopher king on the idea that poets really have no idea what they're talking about. They live in a state of delusion three times removed from reality and much as we like them, we simply can't afford to have them in our ideal republic. And so we begin with a text like this, and then we go on uh, attempting to find ways to rehabilitate uh, poetry uh, and, and bring it back into uh, even a republic that has um, ambitions something like those of Plato. Uh, to me, the high watermark um, in this effort uh, is a wonderful text by Shelley, the romantic poet Shelley, called A Defense of Poetry. And Shelley argues in The Defense of Poetry that science in its imaginative moment just is poetry. In other words, he commandeers the entire field of thought for poetry, understood as the capacity to metaphorize, uh, he then argues that metaphor degenerates into equation or law or whatever it might be in the field and always needs the resuscitation of rethinking. So that um, he believed, for example, that the Americans revised their constitution every five years. I mean, who, you know, he liked the Americans. Uh, naturally, they must revise their constitution every five years. Otherwise, to live under law would be intolerable. Because law, in other words, perpetually needs to be rethought as metaphor. Uh, so this is a, a good instance of a unified field approach uh, to the disciplines, which is which which I celebrate in this in this setting quasi facetiously because we all know the problems with an argument of this kind. Uh, but it's nevertheless, it seems to me, in some ways, an exhilarating one. Matthew Arnold then gives the whole show away. He says, science is true, but it's also hateful 
Darwin has told us that we are no longer the sinusure of the universe. We're descended from some horrible arboreal creature with prehensile paws. Uh, you know, and, 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 and how can we possibly live with this? Well, says Arnold, what we need is poetry, which tells us pleasing lies. Right? I mean, I'm boiling the argument down, but as you can see, everything Shelley won Arnold gave away. In other words, this is, in a nutshell, uh, the drama that I try to communicate in a course of this kind. Uh, and of course, it tells you nothing about science, and in fact, in that setting, precious little about poetry. Uh, but it does, it does uh, oblige you to rethink the questions of the relation among the disciplines. And, I, and we do spend a lot of time in this setting thinking about that. Sorry to have kept you so long. So if, if we're actually going to translate steam, uh, I actually have always hated that, but I, and I fought it for... I think we can all agree on that. If not fought it for a long time, but I've, I've actually decided, you know, it's out there, let's just go with it. So, okay. <laughs> so, um, you the word. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if, if, um, if we're actually going to translate it from the not-for-profit, from the informal learning, into the formal system. Um, we're going to have to tackle this question of, of how we measure impact. And I think that if we stick to the traditional measures, we're kind of missing the point and playing on a losing playing field. I think you also, not just how to measure the impact, but define what... Well, yes, I was just going there. So in order, in order to measure it, first we have to define what we mean by it and what it is that we're trying to impact. So we have all of these wonderful 21st century learning standards. And we all think that collaboration is really important. Um, we don't really measure that very much. Um, we don't integrate that very much into how we think about these things. And yet we now have actual data that proves that relatively small amounts of arts-based learning leads directly to better collaboration among both adolescents and adult scientists. Um, we think that creative thinking is really important. We don't always know how we want to define that. But um, we have good data that we've developed that shows that arts-based learning actually impacts specific creative thinking skills, ranging from the ability to generate ideas to the ability to form heuristics. We think that innovation is very important, but we don't actually focus on that. And yet there are two. We have powerful, compelling data now, and more being developed all the time, uh, that shows the direct impact of arts-based learning on the innovation outcomes of teams. So I think that there's a real opportunity there to work across the, the not-for-profit world, the, the K-12 world, and also to work across art and science, because after all, if we're actually going to, to change things and move the needle on how we think about this, we need compelling narratives and compelling data. We actually have what it takes to do both of those. But without the application of that to, 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 to these questions, we're going to be spinning on the margins of a system which is designed to drive other outcomes altogether, which are actually, as we all know, not the outcomes that we want to be driving as a society.
can can I can we step uh, a little bit back? Because uh, I think we all have different perspectives here. What is the positive benefit of steam from your perspective? Meaning, you're you're talking about all the ways in which it makes us better collaborators, more creative, more innovative. That would be goals for you. But I think all of us have different understandings of what that might, what those goals might be. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I only spoke about a few of them for me, and ones that I happen to have some data on. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that they're a pretty broad and rich set of things that can be accomplished I, through STEAM. I'd like Could to give an example more exact. Uh, you, you mentioned things before, but they weren't really examples that one could, or I could put my... Uh... Yeah. So, um, I'm, 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 I'm grappling for what will be a helpful type of example. When you say an example, an example of... An example of what the collaboration led to yeah, okay, sure. that could not have happened without it. Yeah. So in, in, in our project, we brought together 28 teams of people. Uh, these people were artists, they were scientists, they were students, they were researchers, people from very, very different kinds of backgrounds. They worked together for a year and in these, on these projects, which they selected themselves, uh, in broad challenge areas. They developed things that I cannot imagine have coming out of any other process. Things that were really strikingly original. Social innovations. Um, we, had a, uh, we, 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 we had a team that, that started out trying to reinvent uh, the technology behind how people pay for transportation, but ended up with a novel uh, uh, social innovation and sharing economy innovation that has led today to a thriving nonprofit which has people going to work for nonprofits, banking their hours, converting them into bus passes, being sponsored, and sending about 500, uh, rather 5,000 immigrants to their first job interviews. So I mean, these things are coming out in, 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 in lots of different domains. They would not have happened if they hadn't been artists and scientists and students and business leaders, people from coming from very different perspectives and using the arts as a common language and a set of tools to help them collaborate and generate ideas and develop them. So I'd like to talk about what, what it means to me and what I think, it, how it can impact um, learning. And so this morning there was this, this term steamy and how steamy, you know, steamy has a much more um, kind of rich thought for, for young people, like the kids saying, wow, that's so steamy. So when, when you think about how it can affect, yeah, it's hot, you know? That's like, it's lit. It is, so when you think about how arts transpires and it hits everybody, and, and just you can use it as a way to empower all the learners. Um, just for an example, from, from my perspective, when I was in college, even when I started to know I was a scientist, I would not tell people. 
I would always say I was a dancer. And even when I was going for my PhD, I would go to parties and I would say I was a dancer. So, um, and so now I, now then I got to a place where I'd only say I was a scientist, but now I'm both a scientist and a dancer. And the point is that I think STEAM, this idea of putting it all together, allows you to reach audiences. You ask this question about social justice and, and dealing with STEAM as a mechanism to affect social justice, to be able to diversify the people that you can speak to about science, to allow science to be accessible to the broader public, because the broader public often when you begin to speak about science becomes glassy-eyed. We talked about elitism. So in an elite audience of this type here, yes, science seems so big and wonderful, but in your normal walk-a-day world, you walk into a party and you talk about being a scientist. This is my world, you know, my family. I don't speak about my work with my family. Um, I can speak about dance. I can, so you, you need to be able to have these conversations and to have young people, it's not just students, these students are the, the future scientists, and to have them think something is steamy and them to be able to make the new discoveries because it is young minds that make the new discoveries. It is young minds that shift paradigms. It is young minds who are able to think differently, just as you're talking about staining something differently, seeing something differently, being able to open their minds and not be lost in the paradigms we have now, but be able to have paradigm shifts because they see things differently. And I think that STEAMY will allow us to affect those kind of paradigm shifts, and it's important to be able for people to not see things in this didactic way that we approach science. And that is the beauty of this putting together of yeah. art and science that takes us past this didactic approach. I'd like to also take it from there to point out that we've had some new programs developing, and there's some examples here. Um, one that particularly impressed me was, and was mentioned earlier, was David Edwards' program in, in Boston. Uh, I think he ended it now, the 100K, for high school students. Um, and I was part of the group of people who were uh, brainstorming about neuroscience and art. There was the use, the, these um, high school students, after hearing 30 different ideas, selected what excited them and what motivated them to develop a project. They were given a technologist to work with. They were given an artist to work with. And these are people who, when I first met them, were for the most part fairly inarticulate. At the end of six months, they were so articulate, they were excited, they could develop a budget that could support what they wanted to do. I thought it was really quite a transformation. Um, and it's not anywhere on that scale, but these lasers that have developed, um, they're all over now. They're in other countries. Uh, Patricia Olenek, who you heard before, and I set this up late in 2008 when it wasn't officially called a laser. And we've had people every five or six weeks, except for during the summer, 
months. Since then, three and four people present their ideas. And the beauty of it is not just that it's largely unscripted, which is true here also, which is really quite wonderful, but that at the end of it, we put these people together to talk and see what themes emerge from sometimes quite disparate approaches. And that's really where the excitement for me is, is seeing how uh, a theme and understanding can emerge that had not been there before. And I would say this is true of everyone here in talking about their programs, both in this group and also in the earlier groups. So I think that's what we're trying to get at. I think it's kind of ironic that in our, our culture here in this country, you have to sneak up on citizens when you talk about science. I mean, you can't just be blatant about it. I can't with my family either. And then, you know, science is heavily funded. Of course, scientists wouldn't say so. But art is totally almost not funded. So here we have two groups, <laughs> you know, the underappreciated <laughs> and the underfunded. But, you know, somehow we got from our whatever a love for art and science. So how do we put these together in ways that really relate to the, the, per, the student, the young person, so, so that they're turned on and they ask questions. To me, that's the most important thing, is how do you turn on the brain? How do you provoke the questioning mind? Because the answers are all out there. You just look on your phone, pretty much. So that, it was, that, that's what's so exciting in, in, in the impacts that we've seen in the data that we've developed and that we've studied. It, it has this tremendous capacity to spark engagement, curiosity, enthusiasm, uh, sense of optimism about learning, sense of agency, and that you can apply things that you learn in, in, in your own life and, 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 and change the world around you, impact it. Um, it we, we're dealing with educational systems that by and large are not set up or designed to do those things. So uh, something that you said that you do the seminars with teachers. So maybe we should reach out and do short term or summer session for teachers, teaching the teachers. So because then they can, if they fall the in love the with this. The teachers need the space to do it in. So some, some yeah. schools are doing that already. Um, I'm blanking on the school. It might be Fisk, um, but we, we published about them in August. And yeah, they host sessions about how to teach in a more STEAM-like manner for teachers. And where do they host it? They host it in the school's gallery because, I don't know, there's room there. And it's nice to be in a gallery. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to open it up for questions now, right after Ed asks a question. <laughs> If I, understand it, if I understand it correctly, uh, if you have somebody who is going to go into a lab and study the microtubules inside a neuron, the advantage of that person having gone through STEAM education during his whole education period is that that person 
would hopefully look at the problem in a different way, more enriched way, than if somebody hadn't gone through that education. Is that the claim? That is one of them, yes. yes. And they'll think out of the box creatively because they don't have these preconceived ideas of what the outcome should be. I so think I, I think what, partly what we're describing is the societal need for people who are both fluent in both, and I'm going to add design to this as well because it's an important one. Yes, uh, so uh, design as well as the technology what, or the science, whatever it is, uh, for, for several reasons. One reason is simply that when scientists do their work, they are particularly focused on what is going on in the mechanisms under the microscope or whatever it is. Um, when the designer takes that finding or works with that finding, they're thinking about the people who are going to use that in their daily lives. Right. And so they're acting almost as a translator of the science that's being discovered into the product that will eventually be the whatever it is we use. And I think that person needs to be able to understand both what the scientist is talking about, understand the technology itself, and then be able to understand people's desires. And so there needs to be that translational role in society. I don't know about the internals of Apple, but I will say that you know what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a generation of bio-designers, which are people who are fluent in the language of design and also at the same time can speak to a scientist and understand what they're saying. And the hope, just like now we have in computing, groups of designers who are working on things that uh, basically designing with, with computation, there will be a time in the near future, probably already happening now, we just don't identify it as such, people who are designing with biotechnology, with biology. You know, when we think about GMOs, you know, you know Monsanto crops and things like that, these are bio-designs. These are designs to be used in the context of human civilization, human, uh, the human endeavor. Human experiments. Well, I hope they're not doing human experiments. Well, they are. Well, that's what Monsanto's all about. Well, fair enough. Anyway, my, my point is that if you have a generation of designers who are fluent in that language, but also into, in the social, understand the social context, hopefully we'll avoid some of the environmental, maybe humanitarian catastrophes that we've had in the past. Mm -hmm. Hello, I'm, I'm Len Steinbeck. I teach in the museum graduate program at Johns Hopkins. I w the term neurology has come up, popped up a few times yesterday and today. And I was wondering if you, you could share what you know about neurological plasticity and thinking and ways of thinking that benefit scientists and artists, and whether these have um, these projects have any lasting effect to your knowledge. I, oh, so, I can talk. Oh, please. Um, I was going to say that plasticity appears to be a proven fact that this there is development that is ongoing, but that's not what you really are asking, is it? I'm, well, well I, I want to apply it, and I want to apply it in both directions because for a moment before, it seemed like you were talking about um, science. Um, 
uh, artists impacting science or science impacting artists one way or, th or the other and not as mutually as I hope the conversation would go, right. uh, especially when you talk about certain out outcomes. But, so, but I am interested in knowing what we might know about how an intensive artistic orientation new to a scientist and new scientific orientation to an artist changes in a lasting manner the way they see the world. There's a wonderful, there's several wonderful books, but one I particularly liked is by Warren Nodick, who is both an artist and an ophthalmologist. It was written in 2003, and it was devoted to how an art form, namely the cinema, was sculpting people's brains. And I think it's a very compelling um, explanation of work by people like Gerald Adelman. Yes, and I know there, there is a lot of work done about art and the brain. Mark yes. Turner and kind of many have, but I'm interested in what science does for the art-oriented brain and what art does for the science-oriented brain, or am I being too specific? And please feel free to tell me, because I'm not... Well, I, I can only comment a little bit on one side of that, and that is that, um, I don't know if you know the late James Catterall's work at all, um, but, but he, he did, a, did a meta study that looked at, I think it was 40 neuroimaging studies over a long period of time. Uh, and he found a lot of shared neural substrates between artistic process experience and empathy, actually, to come back to. There's, that work is incomplete, but um, there's certainly some strong suggestions of things there. Um, can, can I just say that um, one influence of um, art on science is um, Ned Seaman, who's at NYU, um, he is known as the grandfather of DNA nanotechnology. He came up with the idea because he loves art and collects art, and it was M.C. Escher's work and tiling that gave him the idea for his whole field of DNA nanotechnology. Uh, so, I mean, there... I'm, I think Leonardo is starting to collect these... Uh, exemplars, and I think we could really benefit our field by having a compila compilation of I've, such exemplars. I've been hugely impressed by the number of stunning examples of collaborative success I've been hearing about in the last day and a half, uh, and still perhaps a little skeptical about how they translate into the classroom. It's the... the uh, uh, what we're, what we're talking about is the um, uh, mutual insemination of great scientists and great artists, or at least very good scientists and very good artists. And, uh, the, uh, in, and in the future of education, this has to give us uh, an optimistic sense that more of this kind of thing is possible, perhaps uh, not quite at such an advanced level. Uh, but, but, but still, I mean, the way, the, the instances of these sorts of success that you all have given uh, is extremely impressive to an outsider. I just want to say that. <laughs> well, it's a, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I just want to uh, note before we move on to the next question, steam officially started in 2008. 
all of us in this room found it before then on our own, <laughs> or whatever we called it. Um, it's it's only been nine years, you know, f for a movement. That's that's pretty short, right? So we are now educating the people that in 10 years will be getting those jobs that will start dictating different things that will happen in institutions. So, so it's a bit of a, a long uh, <laughs> study in terms of what's working, right? But, but I think uh, there are already a lot of good stories. Hi, my name is Jessica Beals. I'm an artist from Washington, D.C. Um, I work primarily with themes related to science and math. Um, but I'm particularly interested in one aspect of this particular discussion today um, related to education because um, I, was, I was once, in, I, for the last four years, have been invited to bring an interactive art project I have to um, an annual summer institute for teachers at the Washington International School where they're focusing on teaching for global learning. So not so much about science or art specifically, but um, they brought my project in, which is a language-based interactive project with rocks um, about identity and community building, just as a um, diversion, mostly, for the teachers to uh, have something to um, do in between sessions and explore whatever was sparked by my project. And of course, I had an underhanded idea about what I was going to do when they turned into my, uh, at my space. Um, uh, and I would have conversations with these teachers about what my work was and what they thought it was. And if they were told it was an art project in the gallery and they were welcome to look at it, they go, oh, this is interesting. Um, can I touch it? Can I do anything with it? I'd say, of course, it's interactive. Do whatever you want with it. And then tell me what you think about what you're doing. Um, and they would go, oh, wow, this is really interesting. It's bringing up memories, and I'm interacting, and what's this thing? There's sort of a seesaw over here. What am I supposed to do with that? And I'd say, weigh out, weigh out the rocks. Weigh out the words on both sides. Tell me what you think. See, see what happens. I was encouraging teachers to explore using a scientific method on a very basic level, um, language on another level, um, interact with each other. And they would go, oh, this doesn't really feel like an art project anymore. And I'd say, well, it isn't. They just decided to call it an art project because it's a diversion. Um, it's actually, there's a lot of science here. I'm, when I use this with kids, I'm teaching them about levers. Um, it's a way to, to edge into to, to physics without telling them that that's what it is because they might be afraid of it. So one of the things that is, it, is sparked in me with all these conversations is that we keep on talking about artists and scientists and how we have to bring them together as though they're intrinsically separate things. And STEAM itself is just an expression of the fact that we're all doing all these things all the time. And, and our institutions perhaps have separated us um, unnecessarily and we're just trying to figure out how to get back to where we all are, which is we're, we're all doing all these things all the time. We just have to stop being afraid to do them at the same time. Amen to that. <laughs> Um, that was actually going to be ex exactly what I wanted to say was that, that thing that was uh, was good to comment on that because I mean to to please invite you to comment on that because we we are saying art and science and when you say that you bring a lot with you like you bring a lot of um, generalities scientists do this and artists do this and we think like this and they think like that and um, you know, in science communication, we, it's, you know, we're trying to, we, there are a lot of great conversations about this, like, we're trying to give you something and, and tell, and like, you, you know, you must take this in and, and 
um, what this whole thing is about is really opening your mind to um, allowing whatever insights are are being sparked by either seeing science and art and things like that, um, and the fa the fact that you know there's like all this. Um, fractal consequence that you never really know what the impact of what you show someone or tell someone or um, give someone uh, will be. And so I, um, I was just hoping you could comment on exactly what she was saying. You know, in this, as we're trying to build a future of education, calling it science and calling it art, um, to start with, as opposed to just saying we're learning about inquiry, um, and what all can you, you know, you as an individual, now that you have made insights and connections, what can you bring to this? Um, something that has been in my, did, did anyone else, Odyssey of the Mind, is Odyssey of the Mind something that was, so that is exactly what I've been thinking about all day, you know, because that's a kind of a, an area where in terms of what you want out of a collaboration, maybe it's not an end goal or a product, maybe it's just to, to let people figure out what they're good at and, and people are going to be good at different things. So you don't have to take an artist and make them a scientist, you don't have to take a scientist and make them an artist, you just have to allow them to um, really figure out what they now see the world differently. So that was more of a comment, but I was hoping that the question of it would be if there was any feedback on that. I'd, I'd give one, and that is that, so we've talked about the institutions and the challenge that the institutions pose. There's also us and the challenge that we pose. And by that, I mean all of us, um, because all of us are expert at something. We have our domain expertise. And I don't think we want to get rid of domain expertise. I think domain expertise is really valuable. Um, and if you think about really high-performing teams in lots of aspects of life, one of the things that's really characteristic of, of, of really effective collaboration is that you can leverage domain expertise. People can go back and forth between being an expert at, in their particular specialty, their domain, and have this generalist knowledge of what we're trying to accomplish together, and, and to sort of fluidly integrate those things. So our institutions are, are, are definitely not set up to do that, and maybe we're not as set up to do that as we'd like to be, and maybe that's a very important thing for us to think about and develop. How do we actually nurture that without sacrificing that expertise, but also recognizing that we all have a tendency sometimes to use that expertise as a kind of leverage that makes it harder to collaborate? I think we should think more about um, you know, infants are, and, and really, really young children, how do they explore the world? I mean, they put it in their mouth. They smell it. They feel it. They taste it. They hear it. All of these senses that Ho Howard Gardner talks about, Harvard education. So this, this sort of tactile world is even what artificial intelligence is grappling with now. How do we put that into computers and into the computer mind? So artists have a lot to offer because these are the tools that we learn in art school. And so um, perhaps we have to go back and unlearn thing, things. When I was a student, I wanted to draw like Matisse. And my professor said, 
first you have to draw like Leonardo before you can draw like Matisse. So we can't reduce until we know what the reality is. We have to train our vision and observation. The Eastern society really knows about observing. We, we don't observe enough. We don't slow down enough, especially in our digital world. But anyway, I think playfulness, going back to childhood, would be a really, really good starting point for education for art and science. And attention is relevant, too. It was brought up earlier. There, yeah. are, I mean, there are two forms. There's depth of attention, and there's the attention span that gets so much attention. And uh, we need to think about the best ways to capture both forms. Yeah. I just want to make a comment about the, the not separating the artist and the scientist. And when people are going to go for the PhD or they're, they're applying for things, there's always this piece where they ask you um, to rate the person's creativity. You always have to rate the person's creativity, but in our education system, we're not always, you know, we're, we're separating these things, and I think we need to not separate. We need to be teaching in a way where maybe we're not always calling this art or calling it science, because the, the person who goes on to become a formal scientist needs to have those moments of creative exploration to set up their hypothesis. And that hypothesis comes from this intrinsic hypothesis place that's this creative place that's the artistic space. That's what Shelley so, said. Imagination. Yeah. So, so there, there really isn't the dichotomy the way it's been set up because the actively working scientists are very artistic, as was brought up earlier in one of the questions in talking about Einstein and his violin. Scientists, even if they don't think they're artistic, are somewhere, if they're practicing, being artistic when they're sitting there, they get that free time, that freedom, that room of their own, should I say, for, for females. But yeah, we shouldn't separate. Hi. I'm Nini Ackowitz, and I'm an artist. Um, I would say um, a, a hacker of technology, a, a, a citizen hacker, so to speak. I've, I've worked on a lot of uh, collaborations um, on art, art science, art technology teams. And um, one thing in the discussion that I'm hearing, um, you know, it's interesting to be talking about this and to learning about other people's perspectives about how does one teach people uh, to collaborate? How do you best open them up, like take this, you know, flower and just completely open it? Well, uh, from my experience, the most interesting teams and most interesting productions that we've created have come from listening to them, listening to other, there, I, there's no one way to teach. This isn't a linear uh, um, uh, discourse. It's taking, uh, for example, um, a hyperactive kid, taking, uh, putting, building a, a, a community of collaboration from all different kinds of challenges, different cultures, different interest, so a kid who's totally interested in music, or another who's interested in the sounds of silence, another, another kid who's like moving so fast they can feel the, they can, they can feel 
the algorithms between their arms, <laughs> you know, like mode moving them. There, there's so many um, things that you can learn from the people that you're putting together, and how and and new and seeing how they create together. One thing that I found really interesting for myself on on some teams were different concepts, like reading different articles, depending upon the age groups, of course, that we're talking about, um, reading different articles about um, scientific discovery, and thinking really in terms of synchronicity, not in terms of disparate uh, movements, you know, like uh, there's the past and there's the future and there's this line. Um, outliers are are incredibly interesting and edify so much of what's going on in the world. And I, I have found that when there are groups that are, that are put together and people are reading different material and they're not embarrassed or made to feel uncomfortable to come up with their interpretations, which may be very much out of the box, but they may be very brilliant. And I'll tell you something. Einstein would not have been one of your, your people who, how you could have collected that data. He didn't do that. Maleva, his wife, did much better at university than he did. And he collaborated with her on projects. So it's, you know, on the theory of relativity, they worked together on it. So you, I just think it's important to listen to the groups that you put together and from that, their discussions of things, you, I believe some really interesting collaborations will come about for the teachers to then be able to learn from too, because it's all about learning from each other. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to add to that. Uh, one of the things that we found is that if, if you create the incentive structure for these collaborations, you get a lot of you got a better result. So in the early days of GenSpace, when artists and designers started to show up and we had other folks who were with science backgrounds, there was a real tension between these, these groups. Uh, the scientist would feel that the artist is, would be using them for their own artistic purposes and they'd be feeling taken advantage of. Uh, on the reverse side, when the artist was, or when the, when the scientist was, um, more quote unquote in charge, the artist would feel as though uh, they are being used to do PR for, for the scientist. And what I found uh, over the last couple of years was that scientists have found that the, the publicity that comes from that collaboration uh, ends up being quite useful for their careers. And what I've seen is that they, there's been a proliferation. Similarly, for the artists, it, it, it has helped them as well. And, and for the scientists, all of everyone. Everyone seems to benefit, at least in some cases. And so the more of that we see, the, the more we'll see these collaborations. I think the single most important thing we can do, actually, is to create spaces and environments that foster collaboration. Maybe offer some, some resources, some models, some freedom to experiment. Residencies. Yes. And I think the culture has been changing in a way to promote this. Um, to some extent. To some extent. I think, I, I, I haven't seen great evidence that the culture within formal education is deeply changing to support that, although I do see 
examples of it happening all over the place. I, I would say the new Minerva Institute, relatively new in California, part of the Claremont system, barred the changes they've made to introduce science into what was previously an arts curriculum. Um, and again, I don't think we can uh, give too much praise to the role that Leonardo has played in fostering a lot Absolutely. of this. Absolutely. And, and, but and K-12 is a tough... Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to keep this brief. Um, first off, okay. Thank you for doing this. Um, I'm, as many of you probably are, I don't think I ever had a choice in where I was going to fall in a career path. My undergrad experience is medical illustration. My grad experience is museum exhibition design. In between, I've done a little bit of everything else. And when you are an interdisciplinarian and when you don't feel like you fit anywhere, life can get a little scary, can't it? <laughs> so to hear that you've been uh, working on these projects, these collaborations, these foundations, you're doing this outreach, it's really heartwarming. But you need to keep doing it. Because uh, a lot of people want to do this. I've been teaching high schoolers for quite a few years now in fine arts and trying to rope in as much chemistry into my dye lessons as I can. So you keep, keep just doing it. But um, remember that doing this, being able to go out on a limb and chase your dream and exist in an interstitial space where you may not have a safety net is a privilege. And if we want to bring more people into this, not just a marriage of arts and sciences, but every single identity that we can possibly rope in, because every identity brings its own perspective to any given question. And who knows which one's going to be useful, which one's going to crack the code, and which one's going to blow everything out of the water. So how do you think you want to grow and maintain a support network, not just for kids to, to bring them up, and not just for students to feed them while they're in school, but for the adults they'll become? Thank you for your comment. I think. Um... I wanted to let you know a nice sentiment, uh, which, which is good for everyone to know. So in, the, in August of uh, last, or this year, rather, uh, Sire Magazine published a STEAM issue, and this was the first collection of a bunch of STEAM articles. Many people in this room contributed to it. Um, and there were a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different approaches, et cetera, but it was just kind of a general roundup. And uh, the one thing that everyone agreed on is that we did STEAM because we thought it was the right thing to do. And we we didn't have to explain why. I was just like, yeah, of course it's the right thing to do. So don't worry, people will keep doing it. <laughs> Hello again, everyone. Um, I am really interested in the, the future of STEAM education as it applies in you know, K-12, but also bringing it into the university. And something I've been thinking about is how we're disseminating what we've learned from these projects that, that we're working on. So how are you guys putting out um, some of the results that you talked about? You know, we have data or 
your course sounds absolutely amazing. You know, how would how would someone else, you know, is there is there a model um, that someone can would be able to take or, or access? Um, because when I I hear about the things, I'm usually in a room with the person and um, on the big wide world of the of the internet, it's it's harder to find and it's not so much um, covered in a lot of the scholarly articles yet. So. How are you guys um, working to to get that information out Leonardo there? Leonardo Journal. Yeah, yeah, there's um Roger. What is the name of the woman who is putting together the collection of steam approaches? You know what I'm talking about? Can you give him that microphone? Because this is good information to everyone. Yeah, my name is Catherine Evans. Um, we're working on the idea of a cloud curriculum project. So anybody who's been developing a syllabus shares it with other people. Um, I call it kind of like a gated commons. You can go, only get in <laughs> by contributing your attempts. Um, and it's, it's got an acronym C dash, Curriculum Development in Art, Science, and Humanities. <laughs> so if you Google it, you'll find the website we're about to announce it and invite people to do curriculum sharing online. Um, because one of the problems is, as you were just saying, it's so difficult uh, to find the other people who've maybe taught for a couple of years and have some best practices or new practices. <laughs> There's a couple of other major places to look. One, one is informalscience.org. Um, and that's a tremendous resource. Uh, we certainly publish all of our major data on there, and so do many other people. And you can find a vast amount on there. Um, the Innovation Collaborative, and if you, you can Google them, and they've developed a lot of best practices and have materials around that and with a lot more coming. Certainly our website also has even more detailed data and information on our work and also a fair amount of other things that we're able to find out and post that we think are of interest to, to that work and to people who are interested in, 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 in this domain. Uh, and so artofsciencelearning.org, lots you can find there. Uh, just to add to that, uh, biodesignchallenge.org. Uh, so we've been working with, I think we've, we've hit the 100 mark, 100 plus uh, university educators who have been working at the intersection of biology and art and design. Uh, I have their sample, I have samples of their curricula uh, online, as well as a library of resources uh, of reading materials from, all, from Foucault all the way to, um, you know, complicated articles on, uh, science articles on CRISPR, uh, which, are, which is a fantastic resource for anyone who's developing their own curriculum. Speaking of Foucault, uh, anyone interested in data mining, from my point of view, uh, might be interested in following the work of the Stanford Literary Lab, which has uh, convincingly found new ways to think about uh, making sense of vast quantities of literary data. So I think we need we need something that's more centralized. So I so I'm an academic, and you know. I do my work, my own little cloud, right? So I think what we're hearing here, it's bringing all these people together and each person saying, oh, I have this, I have this, and then you'll sit and you'll Google and you'll search for it. But in bringing us all together here, 
the beauty of today is that we're all in this room. And it sounds to me like we need some place where we can all be together in a virtual room. That's where all, all of these yeah. pieces that people are you know, saying now are available and it's easy to, to find these things. I would love to share, but as we've talked about earlier in the day, when we write our grants and we're talking about our broader impacts, you know, I've applied to try to get money to be able to share my approach, to be able to teach teachers what I've done. I've taught it four times. I'll share my, my syllabus. But it's hard to get money for being able to, to share these things and teach people what you think you've learned. And I don't know how we're going to begin to do that. And this is where we say well, we have academia, we have you know, uh, not-for-profit, academia, not-for-profit. I think the not-for-profits have to try to bring in us who are in academia because we're always going to not-for-profits to try to get money to be able to do our things and disseminate. Um, but unless we get that money and we have that free time to disseminate, we can't do it the way we might want to. And, okay. We, yeah, we have time for one last quick question. <laughs> I uh, will make the two quick questions and uh, for the night. Okay, <laughs> we're over time. Do uh, we have non-profit and academic media in the roundtable? Do you think we are seeing the birth of a new field, a new interdisciplinary field called art science or called science arts? That is not much separated art and science, just like biochemistry doesn't separate, uh, doesn't split. Biology and chemistry and is biochemistry. And astrophysics is astrophysics. It's not more astronomy nor physics. Do you think we are seeing the birth of this new field in a, an environment like this? The second question is, do you think the academy will, uh, grow, will, will uh, help to grow up this field? Because, for instance, in, in our academy in Brazil, we have a, a, a master's and PhD um, course since 2004 called uh, uh, Education for Bioscience and Health, in which we have a line of research of science and art. And we have 10 theses, PhD theses, on science and art. But I don't know other academies on the world that, that uh, uh, give this liberty, this freedom <laughs> to, to uh, think out of the box like this, like we are doing here. So this question is going to be for the night. <laughs> I just want to make a plug first off for Pearl Primus, who was one of the first people to dance her PhD. Um, and yeah, I think we need a new, a new academy that will begin to look at this. Today, I began to wonder what happened to Black Mountain College, what happened to this kind of place where people want to work this way, where people come together like this in scholarship to, to have these conversations and, and it's not silos, but I don't know how that would happen and where the money is for that kind of scholarship to occur. Okay, well I think your questions are good ones to also re uh, revisit tomorrow. Um, so uh, thank you guys so much for this wonderful panel. This concludes our day together.